Hello, fellow writers! You have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, a.k.a. Lewis, a.k.a. Catherine. We discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. If you are not a fan of spoilers at all, head on out and come back when you've read the book in the title. Otherwise, whether you're a writer here for advice or a reader here for more content on a book you loved, welcome. Today we're going to be talking about A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. I hate how I say her name. I can't do it any better. Langle? Langle? I don't know. You know who I'm talking about. I'm assuming you all know what A Wrinkle in Time is. If you don't, briefly. It's a sci-fi fantasy children's book published in 1962, detailing the main character Meg's journey across the universe to save her father. We open the book with Meg reminiscing on what life was like when her father was there and how he has mysteriously disappeared, likely in connection to his work. He and her mother are actual geniuses, and Meg deals with a lot of bullying and struggles at school because she at least so far, has not proven to also be one. Her twin brothers, Sandy and Dennis, who as an adult I now assume is pronounced Dennis, but I always pronounced as a kid as Denny's because it's a Y, not an I, fit in, but maybe a little too well. Meg's youngest brother, Charles Wallace, we'll get to him in a minute, is the strangest. He took forever to talk, and now he speaks in full adult-like sentences. Outsiders think their family is weird, that their dad left because they were so awful, but then a woman, I put this in quotes, named Mrs. What's-It, comes by during a storm and informs them he's actually being held against his will on another planet. Meg, Charles Wallace, and Meg's friend Calvin, who kind of just happens to be there and wants to help, go on a journey across the universe to rescue him, meeting all sorts of worlds and species and subplots along the way. It's a very fun read, very nostalgic if you read it as a kid like I did, and it provides some good material for us writers to look at. Here's my opening question. Is A Wrinkle in Time a classic? The term classic is very debatable. There are a lot of opinions, but I'm going to say yes, it's a classic. Why? Because it is older than 50 years old, it typifies a genre, and it has had an impact on those currently writing today. And basically, that's what classics do. Most writers have either heard of A Wrinkle in Time or more likely have read it. And most writers in the sci-fi fantasy realm have used her as an inspiration to mix those two genres with elements of both. This is a book about a journey across space, after all, but some of the scientific concepts read more like magic, making it a mesh of the two. And so even if you've never read A Wrinkle in Time, if you do combine elements like that, you're probably getting inspiration from someone who was inspired by her and so on and so forth. That's kind of how classics work. I don't know what your goals are as a writer. I don't know if you want to write a book that one day becomes a classic. Here's what I can say. You can't really do anything to make that happen except, of course, age and write as a staple of the genre you're writing in, but also include something unique enough to inspire future writers. I don't know that you need to be cutting edge so much as you need to be doing something creative within the established genre that will then build over time into something that will completely change the game. So let's really kick off this discussion with the opening sentence of the book. It opens with a cliche. If it's been a while since you've read this, or if you never have, literally the first line of this book is, it was a dark and stormy night. Th there is no bigger cliche in writing. I looked this up to see if Langle was actually the first one to use this, and she was not. It was a cliche even when she wrote it. It was a significant cliche even by the time she wrote it. It's considered pretty bad writing. But 
I'm not convinced it's bad here. Because the vibe of this book with the happy medium and Mrs. What's-It and Mrs. Who's-It and all the clever double entendres with the way Langle names things is very teasing. It, the book is like a big wink. Um, she uses a lot of well-known concepts and flips them for kids. So it seems very in voice for her to start with a cliche, especially given the added benefit that her target audience is children and therefore they don't know the cliche yet. This is something you have to take into consideration when it comes to taking writing advice. 99% of the time, advice like avoid cliches is correct. 99%, not 90, 99. But if you're going for a certain voice or atmosphere in your book, maybe listening to the advice would be a detriment to you. You as a writer have to learn how to differentiate between the two. You need to learn how not to assume yourself an exception, but allow for yourself to be an exception when the time comes. It's a tough line to straddle. I think it comes down to whether you want to be an exception or whether you're fighting it. Fighting the idea of breaking the rules is probably evidence that it's the best choice for you to make, but wanting it is probably evidence you're jumping there too soon. So I wouldn't advise opening your book, even if it's relevant to the setting, with a line as cliche as this. Unless it's a joke or part of your consistent voice. I'm also going to say that books for kids can be a little different in the way they follow the rules than adult books, because often kids' literature is there to prepare children for the reading they'll do the rest of their lives. Very few kids reading this book are going to realize that that first line is a cliche, and they probably wouldn't care anyway because it gets to the point and sets the scene. Kids still deserve well-written books, but like I said, sometimes following the rules isn't always your best bet 99% of the time but not a hundred. So read A Wrinkle in Time and see if you think that opening line is justified. I think it fits the tone of the whole novel and its general twist on cliches, but maybe you disagree and then you know that you never want to use cliches in your own writing. That's really the weird thing about cliches. They're really debatable. They work because we recognize them and they're familiar, but they're also not creative or at at least as creative. So, I mean, it just depends on what is best for your story and what you feel comfortable with as a writer. Now let's talk about characters. Meg is a great main character because she's so insecure. (laughs) She's not pretty, she's not smart, and she's dealing with a lot of emotion over the way her family is being bullied. This is relatable to kids, even if they are pretty, which if you read on in the series, Meg does grow up to be, even if they are smart, which Meg is, she just has trouble fitting into society's mold, even if they aren't dealing with tremendous family pressure, they feel like they are. Kids don't come with built-in self-confidence most of the time. And so creating someone likable that kids can see themselves in is really important, I would say, in kid literature. Meg is truly likable. She doesn't come across whiny, like a lot of YA characters have the tendency to do, she comes across as simply not understanding why she can't fit in and searching for a way to do so. It's a struggle rather than an attention getter, so to speak. The first is understandable, the second is really annoying, and I would also argue it has something to do with the age range. I think a character like this works really well in middle grade. By the time you hit YA, I don't know that characters should be as insecure or as likable because the purpose is different. Teens in books are supposed to be a little bit more role model-y. The middle grade age range is supposed to be where a lot of the relatability hits. Um, There are a lot more morals in middle grade. There's a lot more um, hormonal struggle 
And by the time you reach YA, a lot of teenagers want there to be a little more of an idealistic tone to things. Not unrealistic, not, you know, picture perfect, but they want things to be a little more morally gray. They want things to be a little more unrelatable so they can think about the hypotheticals as opposed to their true real life. That's what I would say. Um, Are teens insecure? Sure, but usually in different ways than middle schoolers. Are they likable? Often, but they're also growing up to realize likability is a certain spectrum. Kids' books can have quirkier characters, people with strange physical attributes, or strange ways of speaking, because kids will buy anything. (laughs) YA tends toward the more attractive side of humans, whether that be good or bad, and unique personalities rather than looks. The lines are, of course, blurred. This isn't an across-the-board kind of system you need to use. But I think we all know that YA creates fodder for multiple love interests, whereas middle grade seeks to be more episodic and quirky. And this is great, because in middle grade, it can be helpful to provide kids with characters that seem, at the beginning, to be just like them, and then show them doing wonderful things, like rescuing their father um, or learning about the universe. Middle grade kids are dealing with different insecurities, I guess is what I'm saying really concretely, than teens. And so seeing themselves reflected in characters like Meg, who are also interesting, can be good for them. Did I actually argue yet that this is a middle grade book? Um, I talked about classics. I also, I'd say this is a middle grade book. I don't think that that genre existed in the 60s, but when you look at the writing style and the length and all of the artwork, like the covers and stuff, I think that's who it's geared toward. Um, So I guess just go with me on that being the assumption here. (laughs) Um, Next for characters, we have Charles Wallace, who is also super interesting. He's a good example of what I mean by middle grade level quirky. He's a precocious child character, five years old here, who speaks in full adult sentences and opens the book by making his mother an intricate sandwich. When she and Meg note that the other brothers may come down if they make too much noise, he says, let's be exclusive, to say they should keep it just between the three of them. He uses big words and he knows what they mean, but it works for his character for a couple reasons. Um, this can This can be hard to pull off, but it works for him because of this. One is that he's still a kid. He still has fears and an innocence to him that children can relate to. He's also very authentic. He's not being pretentious to be a jerk. That's a huge risk if you put a character like this who is a teenager. Uh, Teenagers tend to come off a little more pretentious, whereas children are more quirky when they do this kind of stuff, right? Um, He kind of comes across like the Baudelaire's in a series of unfortunate events. That's just what he's like. He owns it, and he doesn't look down on other people for being different from him. He just is different from them. Um, Charles Wallace is also really useful in the story. (laughs) Obviously, most five-year-olds are not rescuing their fathers from dangerous planets, but in stories, we suspend our disbelief. And Charles Wallace contributes to the group. He doesn't take over. He doesn't become someone they need to save from his own stupidity. He makes childlike mistakes, but not in a way that makes him annoying or even really the catalyst for bad things happening. He uses his skills and he uses them well. So we don't get annoyed with the way he speaks or thinks because he's on our side and it's being used for our purposes. But I think the main reason he works as an oddball character is because the book is told, though in third person, through Meg's perspective. She is our filter. Meg is, I think, 13. She's still a kid herself, and so all her comments about Charles Wallace are filtered through 
the perspective of his sister, who is, you know, maybe a little jealous, but also loves him a lot. He has more self-confidence than she does. And so she portrays him as admirable as opposed to annoying. She loves him because he's her little brother and he loves her too and he helps her. They're pretty distant in age. She's the oldest in the family and he's the youngest, but they have a lot in common. They're both not well-liked. They both scare people with their strangeness. And so because we see a lot of echoes of Meg within Charles Wallace, he feels like a supporting character rather than someone there to distract us. Because a lot of times, precocious characters can just be tangents and therefore really annoying. No one likes a know-it-all. But if the character isn't portrayed that way, like he isn't here, then readers can come to love the character rather than hate him. So consider that when you're inserting a relatively smart character into your book. Are they taking away from the plot or adding to it? Are they emotionally important to the main character and vice versa? Are they authentic about it or are they braggy? That's how you can determine if they'll be likable or if that's not your intention, not likable. Jumping off that precocious point. A Wrinkle in Time does something that a lot of other kids' books do, which is insert vocabulary words into the prose or dialogue and then define them to teach the reader. Now, in the adult scene, I think this would be a really bad choice. It would be showcasing to your readers that you don't trust their intelligence to pick up on the context of the word or that you feel the need to show off or over-explain or talk down to them. But kids haven't yet learned to read into context. They need practice at it. They're reading not just for fun, but to learn stronger literacy. They need that word in context and then defined so that they can understand how to figure it out. Um, When Charles Wallace says, let's be exclusive, he then defines it for his mother and sister, even though they already know what it means, because he's glad of his knowledge. He's not bragging, he's just showing them something he's proud of. Kids feel this way too. They often want to show off something new they've learned. And so using higher vocabulary words, uncommonly used but known, can give kids something to teach their fellow students and to feel proud that they know. It can grow their vocabulary and make them better communicators. It's also yet another relatable quality because I certainly remember loving to talk about the things I learned that I thought were cool when I was a kid. A lot of kids are going to find vocabulary words in that cool category. Just to rehash this, YA readers and middle grade readers are going to be in different places. Um, They're going to want to get different things out of the book, and I do think that younger kids like learning new vocabulary words. I don't think that in the middle grade context, this is weak writing. I don't think it shines badly on you as an author. I think it provides a useful skill that shows respect for those you're writing for. And being really explicit about the definition is a necessary piece because kids are unlikely to go look the word up. Teens might. Adults might. I don't think kids will. They want everything contained in that story. It's going to create discussions for them. It's going to make them think. And it's going to, again, provide a useful literacy skill. Pick a few of your favorite unique words and drop them in your middle grade book. Writing it into the prose or dialogue without an explanation is going to confuse them. Leaving out any challenging vocabulary at all won't succeed in teaching them so they can get to higher levels of reading and grow. Balance your book with both and kids will even look back with more nostalgia on your story because they remember it as a place they learned a cool new thing. So I really like this strategy. I I almost wish I could do it more in YA because I'm primarily a YA writer. I, I don't think it goes as well in YA. I think use bigger words in YA in context without defining them for the most part. Again, the I'm being super broad and super general about the differences between middle grade and YA here, but I do think that in middle grade, there is something special about looking back on that book where you remember learning that cool new word. 
So I think this is a, a cool tactic, and I, I don't think it is bad writing here. All right, my final point about this book is about the fantasy style science. I already touched on it, but fantasy and sci-fi are often interrelated these days. I don't think that was the case 50, 100 years ago. Science fiction like H.G. Wells or Jules Verne tended to strive toward the truly scientific. It was creative science, it was unprovable science, but it was science. And fantasy like Middle Earth and Narnia didn't seek to explain everything scientifically. There was logic behind the worlds, but not necessarily science. I think Langle might have changed the game with this book, or at least contributed to the changing game. The way the characters travel, the biology of the species they meet, the way willpower plays into their successes and defeats is very fantastical. It doesn't speak to science, and yet the explanations all attempt to be very scientific. It's, it's this melding of the two. This book shows that science fiction and fantasy might not be so separate, that some stories may work best when straddling the two rather than striving to pick one. Now, when you go to market or query your book, you're going to need to pick one. You don't tell an agent or a prospective buyer that you have a middle-grade science fiction fantasy romance novel or something like that. It's too much detail. Choose whichever genre your book leans closest to, but through your comp titles, which you can listen to the Queries for Queriers episode for more about, and the way you write your back-of-the-book style summary, agents and readers will pick up how borderline your story may be. Easy to market, but still creative. So what I'm trying to say is that just because you need to classify your book into a single genre for basic marketing purposes, that doesn't mean you can't straddle the line. Some science fiction is so out there it reads as fantasy. Some fantasy doesn't contain magic at all, just a totally unique universe, and may read a little more like sci-fi. Lean into this. There's nothing wrong with it. People have been loving it since Langle's days. And this goes for combining other genres that were historically kept separate too. Ash and I often talk about how we'd love to see more books meshing fantasy with other genres, like thrillers or murder mysteries. And of course, fantasy romance is a huge thing these days. Romance can be combined with anything, maybe not in middle grade, <laughs> um, but it's, it's a versatile genre. But really, you could also combine elements of horror or poetry or anything else with other genres. Combining can be a risk but one that is more likely to pay off than the risk of fitting into the cookie-cutter mold. Respect genre lines, but don't worship them. And let's also note that the universe here in A Wrinkle in Time is so creative with the alternate senses. There's a species that can't see but perceives through totally different stimuli. Dimensions. They go two-dimensional at one point, I think. And all the various personalities of the characters they meet along the way with that quirky twist on the cliches like the happy medium. That's a lot of creativity. It's so different, especially from other books that were being published in the 60s. That's because there was room to play with. There's a lot of space to explore in the lines between genres, so I encourage you to do so if your story feels like it's missing something or is too limited. I'm also going to acknowledge real fast that I just told you that for marketing purposes, you need to pick a genre, and I feel like some people are going to take issue with that, so let me go into more detail. It really is a good idea to have a single genre. I can't speak for everyone, but when I see that a book is labeled under too many genres in Amazon or any bookseller, I am turned off. It makes it appear as though the book won't be very focused, that it's going to meander, or that the author didn't put very much time into it. This may not be true, or it may meander in a really satisfying way, but I'm not going to chance it. <laughs> there are so many books in the world that you need to do everything you can to make readers pick yours, and digging into a genre can do that. 
if I start reading and it seems to combine genres, if there's a new genre in there I hadn't been expecting, I'm going to be thrilled. It's going to feel like an unexpected present. But if you classify your book as too many things, it might become disappointing if those elements don't combine in the way the reader is expecting, if you fudge the truth and one of them isn't there at all, or if you lost focus on your way through a book, trying to do too many things. This is mostly advice for those self-publishing. Traditional publishers are going to market you as basically one genre. Um, I haven't self-published, so maybe this is a strategy that actually works, but focus your genre. And if you're querying, which I am very familiar with, definitely focus on a single age group and a single genre. This is going to prove that you know what you're doing and give yourself a built-in target audience. I am sure books were marketed differently back in the 60s, but even A Wrinkle in Time is classified primarily as a fantasy novel, at least most places I've seen it. L'Angle is lumped in with Lewis and Tolkien a lot, and why? Well, partially because of the time period, but also because her style appeals to fans of theirs. Sci-fi is absolutely an element of this book, and some people may say it's primarily a sci-fi book. I've definitely heard that too. But that's because the elements are blended well, not because the author was unfocused in her writing. Combining genres is becoming more common. I love this. I think it's great, but I think it can lead to a problem where some writers try to combine too much or try to combine elements in a story that doesn't need more than one genre. So basically, you need to be able, if forced to pick, choose a single genre. If you find that you really can't, there might be something wrong in your story because genre distinctions exist for a reason. People like what they like, and a lot of people have multiple genres they enjoy, which is why you can often combine them, but readers need to know what to expect. Like I said, if there's a little present of an extra genre in there, people are going to like it. If you promise too much, you have raised the standard so high for how you're going to deliver. This is one of those tests you can use to determine if your book is ready. Can you pick a single genre? And if you are in a situation like um, a wrinkle in time where you really feel like it is strong sci-fi it is also strong fantasy just pick one it's okay if that extra element is there that you don't market as strongly toward a wrinkle in time is often marketed as fantasy it is also often marketed as sci-fi what is the difference target audience so you may very well classify to one agent if you're querying that it is a fantasy and to another agent that it is a sci-fi and if they are both accurate you're not lying you're just cultivating that query letter to that agent if you are self-publishing you can probably pick two sections under Amazon. Um, I don't know how many you can pick overall. It seems like a lot of books have a lot of genres, but you can pick sci-fi and fantasy, and that's probably not going to be excessively too much. When you're talking to certain people, describe it as fantasy. When you're talking to other people, describe it as sci-fi or whatever genres you're combining, right? That's okay. You're not lying unless one of those elements is significantly stronger than the other. If it's a fantasy with like a little bit of sci-fi in it, don't market it as sci-fi. If it's sci-fi, really strong science-based, and like some of the elements are a little mystical, don't market it as fantasy. Don't be dishonest about what it is to try to trick people into reading it. It can be annoying when you feel like your book is between genres, but genre classification is a really important part of marketing. It's a really important part of reading because you know what you like at a certain point and you're going to seek out books like that. The real problem with classifying your book as too many genres is that many people love fantasy and many people love sci-fi and many people love murder mysteries and thrillers and horror and etc. But the more genres you add, 
the smaller your target audience gets because now that person has to enjoy all of those genres. If you pick up a fantasy book and there are elements of sci-fi in it, you're probably not turned off because you're focused on the fantasy elements. But if it's described as fantasy and sci-fi and you're just not a big sci-fi fan, that might convince you not to read it. But someone that isn't a fan of sci-fi and is a fan of fantasy and reads a book that has elements of sci-fi within a fantasy might grow to love sci-fi because of it. So a lot of a lot of marketing is how you present your book initially. Your book will speak for itself once people start reading. People are going to give a lot of leeway if you are just engaging them, but people are not going to give a lot of leeway in marketing because there are too many options. They have limited resources, time, and money to read so many books. So you need to make sure that at the marketing level you are being honest, that is very important, but that you are also being choosy with the details you tell people about beforehand. So basically, just make sure that you can pick a genre. If your book needs to be classified as two or more in order to describe what it is, it might not be focused enough, and that is probably going to turn off a significant percentage of your target audience. But if you have more than one genre that that book simply fits within, you can cultivate your marketing to different people at different times to suit that. Be as creative as possible in the book's creation, but don't narrow yourself into a tiny niche when it comes to marketing. All right, that's all for this week's episode on A Wrinkle in Time. I feel like I went on a couple tangents, so I hope it made sense to you guys. Um, It's a fun book. It's a good book. And there are some great strategies to at least consider if you're writing more on the side of middle grade. Um, That being said, thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next page. (laughs) 